Pretty camp blood, ain't ya? Thank you for joining us at Now Playing for our Friday the 13th Retrospective. With all the excitement of the Michael Bay remake of Friday the 13th coming out on Friday, February 13th, we here at Now Playing will be looking back at all of the installments in the Friday the 13th movie franchise, from Crystal Lake to New York to Deep Space. You'll never come back again. It's got a death curse. Just a quick warning up front, these are R-rated movies that barely made it past the MPAA, and our discussions of the movies are just as R-rated. And also, these reviews will contain major spoilers. Listener discretion is advised. Today we're discussing the original Friday the 13th from 1980. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing, and with me today, well, why don't you guys introduce yourselves? My name's Stuart, and I'm a film critic in L.A., and I've, I've known Arnie forever. I've done a couple of uh, podcasts for you guys, uh, The Clone Wars, Midnight B-Train. This will be uh, uh, my foray into horror. My name's Arnie. I am a former co-host of Now Playing and co-host of Star Wars Action News, the Star Wars collecting podcast. You can find it at SWActionNews.com. Also host of Republic Forces Radio Network, the Clone Wars animated series podcast, which you can find at RepublicForces.com. And host of the Star Wars Action News Book Club podcast, which you can find if you're lucky. <laughs> so today we decided to get together to watch Friday the 13th, the original Friday the 13th. As sort of, well, Arnie and I were sitting down one day talking about how they're actually remaking the Friday the 13th to be released on February 13th, Friday the 13th of 2009, and how great it would be to watch the original movies again. And I told him, I've never seen these movies, and an idea was born. This is a countdown to the remake. We are going to get together and watch all the sequels in the Friday the 13th series as a countdown to the remake. So I guess we should start off by explaining to the audience what our experience is with this series. And Arnie, why don't you start off? I have a long history with the Friday the 13th movies going back to when I was seven years old in 1982. And I first saw these movies because some older kids who were staying in our house, foreign exchange students, hot, but I won't bother going into that side story. (laughs) They monopolized the television. They were teenagers and they were just obsessed with the VCR and I had nothing to do after school. I was bored and I joined them in watching the movie they were watching, which happened to be the first Friday the 13th. They were near the end and being young and not really able to know that what I was seeing on TV wasn't real unless it was Transformers or something animated. I was a little freaked out, especially when they reveled in the gory death scenes and replayed the decapitation of Mrs. Voorhees over over and over and over and then finally that movie was done and they put in the next movie and I'm like thank god I don't have to see any more blood and they put in Friday the 13th part 2 so I fled to my room I bet that totally ruined Smurf for you you're like I can't watch anything that Gargamel's coming after me. <laughs> I had nightmares about machetes and everything for the longest time. And, you know, you watch some of the stuff today and you go, oh, that looks so fake. I, I can think of so many movies, Terminator being one of them, where you see certain scenes and you're like, oh, that is so fake. As an adult, you watch this as a kid, you don't notice these things. I, I thought the only way they could film a decapitation was to cut a head off. And I knew nothing about special effects. I was freaked the hell out. 
But I believe in a perverse way, kind of like the nymphomaniac who was molested as a child, I got into horror because I was so freaked out by it, and I became quite a bit of a horror connoisseur, and it always intrigued me from that point on, and I, I'd try to watch it, but I'd get scared watching it, and finally I jumped in with both feet at age 12, became a major horror movie buff, Nightmare on Elm Street was my first one, side note, I, I once saw Freddy's Dead the Final Nightmare in full Freddy outfit with glove and mask. I mean, I was that into it. I was costuming. And Jason was kind of my B-roll. I saw Friday the 13th Part 8 in theaters, but I was worried because I was hadn't seen 1 through 7. I was afraid I couldn't keep up. <laughs> it turned out not to be an issue. I kept up just fine. And then I saw 1 through 7 shortly after Part 8 came out. Yeah, I agree. When you see a horror movie that's uh, evocative at an early age, it does sort of get you into that mode. Alien was the gateway drug that I saw right when it came out, 79, 80. It's probably 80 because it was on cable. And from that moment on, I, I wanted uh, to watch more horror, and I was probably seven, eight years old. Alien and Poltergeist were my two favorite movies growing up, and I went through a period between the ages of you know, eight and 13 where horror movies were just about all that I wanted to watch. I would like to make a distinction between horror and slasher. I like horror movies. I like things about haunted house and ghost and suspense. Slasher movies to me always felt a little generic, with the exception of maybe some of those Freddy episodes. There was always something kind of impersonal about them. And I never really had much feeling about Friday the 13th the series. I thought that they were kind of boring people who um, did bad things and then got killed by a very impersonal, boring killer. And I, I, I feel like I might have seen most of the series as it was coming out, but I didn't, I didn't follow it with the fervor of a fan. I remember feeling like the first movie was, was pretty dull until you got to the uh, finale at the lake. And I guess we can talk about that later, but never one of my favorite series. I'm interested to see, coming back to it now, watching them all again, not only was I right, but uh, what is the appeal? Why did this one have 11 chapters and is being remade and no one remembers April Fool's Day, New Year's Evil, Silent Night, Deadly Night, or My Bloody Valentine. Uh, why this holiday and not another? And that's a great transition for me, being the noob here. I have seen the original Friday the 13th one time and that was in high school, way after the series had pretty much peaked and gone away from theaters. Growing up in the 80s, these movies would come out like what every year or so, and I would never go. Horror films and slasher films were not really something we had in our house. I knew it was on cable. I shouldn't watch it because it was rated R, and I shouldn't be watching that. So I'd, uh, once in a while, I'd sneak in on a rated movie like Police Academy, but never got a chance to watch these. And so I never wanted to until sometime in late high school, early college, when I was making a point of when I went to the video store, if I couldn't find a new release, I wanted to watch a classic. I would go to the Oscars best picture wall and see if I could find something there. Or maybe I'd rent Dirty Harry or a movie that I was told I always needed to see but never got around to like Predator. And so on one of these trips, I, I realized, you know, I've never seen a Friday the 13th movie. There's tons of sequels. I want to see what the appeal is. I'll check out the first movie. And I remember liking it back then. I thought it was pretty good and interesting, but not so interesting that I went back and get the sequels. So Friday the 13th 1, part 1, I guess we should call it, is the only one I've ever seen. And so I'm coming into this series with just what I think they're about, what I think the series and the genre is like. I love suspense movies. I love those mysteries, those ghost story kind of movies. But uh, slasher movies were never my thing. So I'm looking forward to really experiencing the sort 
of movie. I have seen The Evil Dead. I have seen other movies like this, but never a complete series and etc. So I'm looking forward to checking these out with two people who I guess you can call experts in this sort of thing, right? You guys know what you're talking about. We've, we've seen them all. We both subscribed to Fangoria at one point <laughs> yeah. in our life, yes. Yes, I think I had a subscription, <laughs> yes. I did too. So we should bring this up before we get into Friday the 13th, the movie. When I first heard they're remaking Friday the 13th, I thought, well, why not just release another movie? And after watching... Well, he's where else does he have to go? I guess he can go to another galaxy. But I I think now that we've watched the original movie, I could totally see that in this day and age of remakes and reboots, I think this one probably needs a remake or a reboot instead of just another entry into the series. Well, let me mention when I got to speak with Robert England at San Diego Comic Con this year, I got to interview him for Star Wars Action News. I know that's a strange connection there, but I did. <laughs> I asked him about Freddy versus Jason 2 because Freddy versus Jason was immensely successful. The most grossing movie of either franchise when you brought those two titans together. There were all kinds of rumors of Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, and I don't know exactly why the decision was made to not continue this franchise forward in that direction. Admittedly, Robert England's getting up there in years and i imagine they have to use a stunt double a little more than they had to in the 80s jason they keep replacing the stunt double who plays him but it's an interesting choice that they are remaking friday the 13th and they're talking about a remake again i think it's michael bay doing a remake of a nightmare on elm street and just rebooting both franchises rather than continue what was a very successful movie however when we get to freddy versus jason it's a far cry different than the initial Friday the 13th because Freddy versus Jason is like a WWE cage match. It has the same tone and tenor and gravity as a WWE cage match. It had become almost self-parody. And the only way to make a scary movie out of either of these iconic horror villains would be to start again. And so I guess that's the way they went. Michael Bay, who is not my favorite person in Hollywood, but I think he did a very good job with the remake of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, taking what I consider to be some really poor source material and making a compelling remake, although the sequel to the remake really sucked. I think that he's doing good things with that genre. One of the few people to pay attention to horror in a while that doesn't involve Saw or Hostel or Zombies, and to take some of these classic movies and remake them so that they're actually bone-chilling for a new generation is a good thing you know i have to step in there for a second i'm not a huge fan of remakes per se i remember watching the original dawn of the dead for 1978 about two years ago for the first time just for the first time and loving it and yes it is a smaller budget movie it is a slower pace it's from the 70s but if you go in there with the mindset of this is an older movie and this is how movies were made and this is what they had, if you understand the circumstances, you enjoy the movie. And beyond that, I thought it was pretty clever in the way they did things. We watched about 20 minutes of the remake of Dawn of the Dead that was on cable soon afterwards, and I turned it off. I mean, it was really cool. The zombie was running fast, but I didn't feel any sort of involvement. I didn't feel any tension. I didn't feel anything there. 
And I find a lot of these remakes, although they, I think a lot of people today have issue with watching older movies, especially younger kids, don't like watching older movies and prefer to watch the new ones, and those remakes will target those folk. But if you're not going to get the spirit of the movie down, and you shouldn't call it the same movie. I mean, I'm not an expert on these remakes, and I haven't seen every single remake, but I know they've remade so many of these classic suspense and horror movies from their early, late 70s, early 80s now, and I haven't even bothered watching them because I want to see the originals. I watched The Omen a few years ago and thought it was fantastic. And I can't believe they remade that movie. That movie still works. Why remake it? There's rumors of them remaking Rosemary's Baby, which I think, frankly, doesn't hold up because I know the ending. The endings become a cliche so badly that I don't think it really works. Maybe that remake would work, but they would have to have a bigger ending than they have now. But the, the point I'm trying to make is I'm not a big fan of let's remake it because I think some of these older movies, they're famous for a reason. And I think there's a history there that... It, you should experience, but you can't make people see old movies if they don't want to see old movies. Beyond that, though, I think that Jason and Freddy deserve to be feared. I think that because they'd gone into camp, there's not a whole lot you can do with it because. Well, Jason started in camp, Arnie. <laughs> mm-hmm. get yes, get I get it. <laughs> it's a joke, as you were. <laughs> I'm not a fan of them remaking everything like you said the fog what was the point prom night what was the point dawn of the dead i like the remake better and it it all becomes up to the quality of the screenwriting and the quality of the filmmakers and everything but when it comes to the big franchises i can see a little bit more point in trying to take them back to their core i mean this is what the third or fourth reboot for the halloween series we recently had they they just keep rebooting that thing like a dead pc but <laughs> it's the first reboot for Jason, and I think that everybody sees Jason as a joke. He's an action figure. He's a Halloween costume. To try to make him scary again is to pay homage to what came before. And I agree with you. I think after watching this first movie, I don't think they can just tag another Friday the 13th movie out there. I do think it might be time for a remake because there is a lot of stuff here that actually could work in a modern-day movie, in a modern-day setting. But getting into the original, which I guess we're here to talk about, the thing that they cannot do, uh, that became clear to me as I was watching this one, is that they can't create the sense that we don't know who's doing the killing. Which, you know, thanks to Scream and all the sequels, we know about Freddy, we know about the hockey mask. That's not in this one. This one, and it's pretty spoiled at this point, uh, the killer is Jason's mother. And they spend the whole movie, it's designed as a murder mystery, with uh, leading into false directions about who the real killer is and why they're doing it. And uh, you can't recreate that, that feeling that we don't know who the killer is. I agree. I think one of the best things about this movie for me is, even though I know the ending is, going on the ride of, oh, that was meant to be a misdirect. Oh, that was supposed to, oh, he's, they want me to think it's Steve, the owner of the camp. And and so that was fun to, to see how they would do that. And I, I, I agree with you. I thought it was um, the way they kept the killer secret and all those point of view shots and the way they killed them. We only see like a foot. We see the ring. Do we even see a, a full ha- a hand or do we just see the weapons? I don't even know. Just the weapons. So, yeah. So it's really kind of. I guess we do see a hand once in a while. The hand that grabs Kevin Bacon's forehead or the hand oh, that reaches I, around the tree. And you saw the ring on her finger, obviously. So there you go. 
But yeah, I thought the, the suspense of this movie really worked for me. The thing is, yeah, I didn't realize any time in my life until just watching this the other night that this was a murder mystery because you watch a Friday the 13th and you know it's Jason or in this case, Jason's mom. I knew that when I was seven because I'd seen it and it's part of pop culture. But in seeing it this time, I was like, wow, they want us to think it's crazy Ralph because Ralph is wearing black pants. It has thin legs and the killer is wearing black pants and has thin legs or they want us to think it's Steve Christie because he drives a jeep and you see him with the axe and I, I've never seen a killer in such tight jean shorts before but <laughs> it was the 70s <laughs> was it ever yeah that yeah. killer mustache too <laughs> <laughs> yeah that thing was going into his mouth that was gross <laughs> but I never really thought that it was like 10 little Indians and you were supposed to think which one of them is killing the others and then all of a sudden at the end ooh it's none of them well that's not a fair little twist yeah it is cheating it's the I, what I refer to as the Scooby Doo effect they really set up that it's the camp owner because the first time we see him he's swinging an axe which which doesn't even make any sense because like it's summer they don't need firewood and the cabins are built so i don't know why he's got an axe and chopping wood other than to make you think oh he's the axe murderer because he has the axe and indeed the real killer turns out to be sweet old mrs Voorhees, which would have been fine if we had met sweet miss Voorhees <laughs> in the beginning of the movie in the town or something but the fact that she's not even on the list of suspects the fact that she doesn't pop up until they're ready to reveal the killer is uh cheating at uh, at a murder mystery you you have to you have to give us the opportunity to guess that it's her in order for us to feel in on it. Well, I always felt that that kind of thing was a murder she wrote kind of thing. They always give you that one piece of information they don't give you, and if they gave that information to you earlier like they should have, like Jessica Fletcher obviously had or something, or Matlock had it, why can't we have it? Even Diagnosis Murder, I guess the old the old lady murder mystery is on TV. They always, that one little bit of information that we don't have solves the mystery. So, yes, but in all of those shows, they have the summation scene where they gather the entire supporting cast of one-episode guest stars in a room and then reveal which one of them is the killer. Here, right. they don't give you that option. The one piece of information they hide from you is that there's another person at the camp. Well, around it, – yeah, it, right, okay. You're right. Yeah. I also like that the misdirection thing you mentioned with Steve. They wanted you to think it was Steve, and I loved in the beginning of the movie, he drove away in a Jeep. And then the first girl who comes to camp, the chef, who gets killed on the way. And thank goodness she got killed because that girl was so annoying. She, I mean, the acting was bad in this movie, but she topped, she topped it all off. She was just so annoying. I hate it when they call them kids. It makes me think of little goats. <laughs> exactly. I mean, like, <laughs> shut up. You know what? If you say one more thing, I'm going to split your throat. And you did. And I did. So, <laughs> yes, a, a bad jokes abound today by Brock. But she was picked up by a Jeep. And Steve drove away in a Jeep, or a car that looked like a Jeep. So, obviously, if you think about it just for an extra second, the Jeep, Steve drove away from the camp, the Jeep that picked up the girl drove towards the camp. But beyond that, the misdirect was there, and I thought it was really clever. So when he pops up at the diner later on, you're like, oh, I guess it's not Steve. But it was kind of fun that they try to do that misdirect. And Stuart, not to be a, a jerk or anything like that, but... 
it was obviously Steve was chopping wood for s'mores. Who doesn't love s'mores? You gotta have a campfire. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, come on. First thing I think of when I'm at summer camp is s'mores. Well, the thing with Christy is it's his camp, right? He's opening it back up. Yeah. I'm still not quite sure why after 22 years that they wanted to reopen Camp Blood, but he decided to open it back up and then he gets in his Jeep and tells the entire gang, I'm going to be back after lunch. And then you never see him again. Did he go to town and just like sip coffee all afternoon while the young kids who he's paying fix up his camp? What's up with that? That's kind of a jerk move for a boss. And, you know, I realize this, I'm, I'm coming as the desensitized MTV generation person, but a, a camp gets a reputation for being Camp Blood because two people got killed there? Well, and the kid the year before. Okay, he but he drowned. He drowned. Not killed, drowned. I mean, a difference. I mean, that to me doesn't have the reputation of, oh, if every town person... Every single one of them gets that bugger-eyed, like, you know, they're laughing and they're, and they're have, in the bar and just laughing. Then someone walks by and says, how do I get to Camp Crystal Lake? And everyone gets the bug-eyes and like, you can't go there. It's Camp Blood. It's got a death curse. <laughs> Two people? I mean, but that's what's kind of sweet about Friday the 13th is that it's very old-fashioned for all of its uh, reputation as being a slash and cut em up kind of thing. It's very old-fashioned in its sense of um, murder. There's very few kills, and although Tom Savini's uh, gore effects are quite good, they're, they're not particularly graphic, uh, with maybe the exception of the Kevin Bacon kill. And it's just kind of sweet. You know, if you go back into the mindset of that time, when people said serial killer, you think of Lizzie Borden and an axe, or you think of Jack the Ripper slitting throats. And that's all that this killer does. I, I feel like today we've gotten so fetishistic about killers and their motives, and it's on television and everything. We've just come up with crazier and more outlandish killers. Like now it's like he likes to eat their toenails off while tap dancing naked on his mother's grave. You know, it's, it's so outlandish that just seeing a movie in which someone gets their, th- you know, goes around slashing throats is, um, dare I say it, kind of sweet. Wow. I mean, I understand your point, but the way you phrased it was like, I'm not going to your house. (laughs) (laughs) Come on over, Brock. It's fine. Don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. Don't tell him that. (laughs) Oh, I think we can just order in. No need to cut those vegetables. So um, you brought up something that I think is a good transition for um, one of the points that I love about this movie. And I really did enjoy watching this movie. I had preconceived notions the first time I saw it, and I'm glad to see that all these years later, after watching it again, that my impressions were basically the same, that I thought it was pretty good, as we talked about the misdirects, but I thought the kills, the actual kills, were very clever, and, and there's a nice variety to them. You didn't actually have to see everyone get killed. Some of them were implied. You saw them off screen. Like, for example, Kevin Bacon, we talked about, gets that great arrow through the throat. I thought that was really well done and believable looking. I thought when they slit the girl's throat in the Jeep, I thought it looked pretty good how the throat just opened up and then they didn't show you steve's murder you just see him talk to the person he knows right because he knows her and then you see his eyes bulging his and him lurch over because he got it in the stomach somehow i thought and that was really clever you also don't see the annoying guy's death he just goes into a cabin where he thinks he hears someone shouts hello and then the next time we see him he's above kevin bacon and kevin's girlfriend dripping blood which i mean obviously was a really fun reveal i thought it was really fun they did that 
But if you walk into a <laughs> a bunkhouse and of all the beds, if you walk up to a bunk bed, you could see the top bunk. But that's okay. I, I think mean, he was it, looking it, down. At- not in this lighting scheme. They had no lights in this movie. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't see people's faces in the day. They stand under a roof. It's like, I can't see your face. <laughs> Obviously, the budget was very low. I, I think you're right on there, Stuart, actually. Maybe because they had no money, that forced them to be clever. And I think it's true. They, they, it forced them to be clever on how they did the kills and how they revealed the kills and all that kind of stuff. I agree. I, Tom Savini did wonders with the gore effects, but they weren't solely relying on him to create the, the moments of tension and suspense. They used old-fashioned movie making. What I found as interesting with this is I'm so used to modern horror movies where you see the knife go into the person. And with a couple of notable exceptions, like the arrow through Kevin Bacon's throat here, most of the time you see an axe swing and then cut to the person with the axe embedded in their head. You don't see <laughs> the impolation. And it may go back to what Stuart says, oh, isn't that sweet? We don't see the di- axe go into the head. We just see the person falling with an axe in their head but it comes off as a budgetary constraint because those things cost money you need prosthetics and you know what's funny about the axe in the head was for me that was one of the worst kills because it was it's almost they edit it poorly in that she was standing there you almost can see her inhale to scream with her eyes closed because she stood there and screamed with her eyes closed ah cut away cut back axe in the head i thought she just stood there and took it and it didn't make any – that was like the worst – I mean, of all the bad acting in this movie, that one was pretty bad. But I get your point. There actually was a real de- decapitation in this movie. Uh, yes, a real however, the, the trick with that decapitation – and maybe it's because I'm seeing it on a big screen for the first time because I've only seen this on 26-inch TVs and smaller before. This time I'm seeing it on my home theater display. You see the machete coming in from the left and the head's already off the body. And when it hits it, the head flies off from the right as – the machete hits the left side it's it's kind of you know and the fact that they show it to you in slow motion it really gives away their little trick there although the grasping hands is always cool i i was more referring to the actual snake that actually got decapitated during filming of this movie <laughs> did they really kill that snake because i that didn't look any snake. other way that they could have done that, that i was wondering about that Wow. I did not realize that either because I'm so used to seeing no animals were harmed during the making of this film. If they put that in there, they were lying. Wow. I looked it up, uh, the movie, after we watched the movie, I looked it up because I wanted to see something about the next movie. And they said right there the snake was actually killed and it was not originally in the script. During the filming, some of the kids stayed at the camp. And one night, either in director's cabin or one of the kids' cabin, a snake came in and they told the story the next morning and they decided to put it in the movie because it's one of those creepy things that actually happens at a camp. And, it, and they, I guess they thought it'd be clever for the movie to have like, you know, a scare that wasn't involving a killer, you know, like the, the, how a camp can be scary because it's outdoors and stuff, whatever. Here's what I found interesting about that. What you just told me is I thought that whole scene was a setup to make us think that that counselor Bill was the killer because you see Bill in this long lingering shot with the machete over his shoulder that he so expertly swung to kill the snake. I thought it was saying Bill, who is the second last surviving counselor, is right. the killer. I thought it was another other misdirect and it, i guess it was but the origin of it was not in the script it was uh, based on real events <laughs> wow. based on- well, there you go if you're vegan fair warning you cannot watch friday the 13th <laughs> i'm sorry about that but you can watch friday the 13th part two <laughs> you know i also while we're talking about the the murders 
I was actually impressed because I was watching the movie how the flow of it worked. If you think about it, the killer, when she gets to camp, finds the, the annoying guy who does the bad Humphrey Bogart impression early in the movie, kills him in the cabin. Then, then the girl and, and Kevin Bacon go to that same cabin. So she's already near the cabin. So she kills those two. But first, the girl goes to the bathroom who has sex with Kevin Bacon. She goes to the bathroom. She, she kills Kevin Bacon in the cabin, then follows the girl to the bathroom. And then after she does a bad Catherine Hepburn impression, she gets killed. <laughs> so what we're <laughs> saying then, here is don't do bad 40s impressions or don't, don't do outdated kill you. filming icon impressions. Exactly. If they were doing impressions of like Burt Reynolds, they may have survived. So <clears throat> she's doing a, uh, she gets killed in the bathroom because she was followed. Then she's already still near the bathroom when the naked Monopoly girl comes in. So then after she leaves and she follows the naked Monopoly girl to kill her, and then she's near the other two. So it's kind of like you see the killer and how she weaves her way through the camp. And I thought that was pretty cool because it wasn't so random. Whereas in, if you watch like A Scream in 1996, there's only one way that movie can end because the ghost guy seems to pop up everywhere, but that doesn't make any sense. In this movie, it actually does make sense in the logic of how each person gets killed. However, how did she get to where Steve Christie was walking into camp? Another great misdirect. I think she might have seen the police lights. Imagine if that police car actually was able to drop off Steve to the camp party over you know so i maybe she saw the lights and and wanted to see what was going try to escape that's what i thought maybe i'm just giving the movie too much spin but i thought she was trying to get out of the camp because she saw the police lights the other thing that i'm thinking about this is when mrs Voorhees shows up at the end is she driving a jeep she has a vehicle i can't remember what vehicle she's driving i thought it was the jeep because later on we'll find out the body's still in the car so it was obviously the same car, and I thought it was a Jeep or a Jeep-like looking vehicle. To me, Steve's car looked enough like that car to think it was a misdirect to me. Well, it, we can sit here and debate the plausibility of, of her kills, <laughs> but I, I, I still have to question someone who, you know, 20 years later, what do you think this lady was like during the 60s? She, you know, like, how, she, everyone else was dancing around. She's like, no, I'm going to, when they open up that camp, I'm going to kill them all. Like, <laughs> does she not ever move on? You know, grief. Isn't there some grief counseling in the 60s she could have gone through, you know, become a lesbian or burn a bra or something? What, why did she wait so long to take revenge on people that had nothing to do with her son's death? Well, what about the fact that perhaps, remember, she's an old friend of the Christie. She says that. So let's oh, take oh, her I, I didn't believe her when she said that, but I guess that could have been true. If she is an old friend of the Christie's, because obviously she worked at that camp because she was there with her son and she knew the camp, she got her revenge back in 58 and she it was it was closure for her. And then much like the ex-girlfriend you have introducing you to her husband 20 years later, when the camp started to reopen, it tore open those old wounds and all of the pain flooded back. Okay. Right. Yeah, you know, there's a little bit here about of, of Psycho. I got to, as a final thought on the movie, I got to bring that up. Bates Motel, son obsessed with his mother, who ends up being his mother and killing women. This feels like the reverse, you know. The woman's still living out there, that she's her dead son in the camp, trying to kill the people who were having sex when they should have been taking care of her kid. Although I got to say, if she was working in the camp, why wasn't she watching her son? Eh? Agreed. 
Good point. And you, you know what? I never thought of the psycho thing before, but you're right. To the point of Mrs. Voorhees talking to herself as Jason the same way Norman Bates talks to himself as mother. Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, before, you know, everyone thinks of a slasher movie, they think of Halloween and Friday the 13th. But those movies had no frame of reference other than Psycho. That really was the first slasher movie. Right. And while we're bringing up other movies that influenced this, I had a big problem with the music because... I felt it was so much like Jaws, the two notes, and then they actually had three notes afterwards, but every time the killer would pop up or the killer was supposed to be there, they had that... Which you can't which was, beat. That's, which is cool, which I love. <laughs> I love that is the whole series, really. <laughs> I like that. I had a problem with that, and I thought that was pretty cool, but the... Dun, 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 or whatever it was, I just thought Jaws every single time, and I'm like, what a ripoff! It does, and I would argue a psycho too kind of has a score like that, where the well, psycho, it's a string section, try, it kind of sounds like a scream, and right. yeah, it's like these real striking, jink, 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 yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's it's you know like like I said, what did what did these movies have to copy other than Jaws and Psycho? You can see their influence and yeah, Halloween. I- <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was definitely the product of all of those. And Carrie, we'll talk about the ending in just a little bit. A couple of things I have to note watching this. This movie was not as good as I remembered. I had put this movie up on a pedestal. And watching it now, the acting is tremendously awful across the board. The With the possible exception of Betsy Palmer. I think, you know, she sold yeah. that part. Everybody else is awful, especially Alice. Or, and you talked about that girl who got her throat slit and after running from the jeep everybody's bad in this you know i have to agree with you that the first half hour of this movie with that horrible dialogue and the horrible acting i liked watching this movie this time but the first half hour was so bad once they started killing people the movie took off no pun intended like a shot so i i think you're right and i think the uh i thought actually i thought i kind of liked alice i thought alice was the best actor of the bunch which is why i guess she was the last one alive because she was the best actor. Perhaps. She she was okay in that regard, and she got better at the end. I'm just thinking about the when we're introduced to Alice at the beginning, and she's working on that gutter, and Steve Christie's like, do I really look like that? And she's like, you did last night. <laughs> you know, I just that's awful, awful stuff. And I do feel actually a little bad for myself in that I feel that today's movies have robbed a part of me. My patience is gone because you're right. It took a half an hour to get into the kitchen. And I don't care about these people. I don't care about that they need more thinner to paint the deck. (laughs) I I just want to see them die. And that's a product of being of this generation. It's it's why somebody earlier mentioned Rosemary's Baby. I couldn't sit through that movie because when that movie ends is when most movies start. Yeah, you know, maybe that's the secret weapon here. It's like in order for you to root for the killings, they have to make these people so contemptible. You know, they hire the worst actors, and then, <laughs> you know, and, they, and then they bore you with these mundane scenarios, and then you're, you're ready. You're with it. It's like, <laughs> someone get the axe. I don't even care who. And, I like the person that kills them, <laughs> and not the people that we're supposed to be rooting with. You know, the heroine of the movie is not someone that's particularly interesting. Of course, the irony is that the people who are rooting for the killer, were they in the movie, would be the ones who are killed. Yes. 
Exactly. Yes. No one, no one ever gets that. It's kind of the disconnect. It's like you're cheering on someone that would be happily put a knife in you. But all right. However, you know the big theory of horror movies in the '70s and '80s, and I wrote several papers on this in college. Sadly, this is my my bachelor's degree is in Freddy. <laughs> <laughs> He's not kidding. I actually helped you write some of those papers. <laughs> my 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 graduation thesis was on a Clive Barker book. <laughs> I and its relationship to Martin Luther King's "I Have a Dream." No, that was high school. I'm talking college. Oh, okay, wow. that was a high school paper I wrote um, <laughs> for someone else. But wow. so I would be killed because I was writing bad papers. I'm ready. To, yeah, I'm ready to take an axe to the to the writing at least. But in watching this movie, I realized that my senior hypothesis was wrong because Alice lives. What did Alice do to live? She didn't have sex, but neither did Bill or the naked Monopoly girl. No, Alice- but, they, but, they, but they were the ones that got naked. You know, they were the yes. ones. If you notice playing strip Monopoly, I don't know whether she never landed on the property or whether she was just taking off, like, you know, beads or something. But she is still fully clothed while everyone else is in their underwear. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. First of all, there's only th- two girls and a guy. What made her think, hey, strip Monopoly? Two. <laughs> Three-way. Yeah, well, fine, but like you think more people would be involved in a strip Monopoly game. Two, she ends the game because she left her windows open in her car. Couldn't she just come back to the game? I'll be right back. I thought that exact same thing. Although, I have to question what are the rules of strip Monopoly? Because Alice rolls her dice, moves her piece, lands on a square, and then tells someone else to take clothes off. In Monopoly, when you land, you're the one who pays. Yeah, and then she leaves to get to her car, and she has to put her clothes back on. She goes out there almost stark naked to, ch- to go into her car. That made no sense to me. Put your clothes on, go to the car, come back, put the clothes off again. That's, I don't All understand. I know is if you want to seduce somebody, Monopoly, everyone knows it's a four-hour game. <laughs> Talk about foreplay. Jesus. Four-hour play. Yes. Yeah, four-hour play, indeed. We must talk about the ending of this movie because I, in researching this film, it turns out the ending, which everybody says is like Carrie. You've got Alice on the boat and the mm-hmm. calm music, and then all of a sudden Jason comes up, and it's our first sign of Jason other than in a long shot flashback. So here we introduce to Jason. Is the biggest jump of the whole series. I have to say, when I saw it then, it really was upsetting. It was a, it was a big jolt. I thought it was really effective. I thought it was great. You didn't see it coming, and he looks so gross, you know? And he jumps out and grabs her. I thought it was just a classic, fantastic final scare. What's funny is that was Savini's idea, having just seen Carrie, and it was not part, of, again, of the original script, much like, I guess, the snake. It was something thrown in as just a lark. Knowing that detail, it's like they didn't know what they were making when they were making it. They did not know that they were going to make endless franchise in which this zombie boy comes out of the lake to kill teenagers. They were really making something self-contained and rather old-fashioned and very much in the mode of Hitchcock and Psycho. And, and it's kind of funny that it just sort of dawned on the special effects artist at the last minute, hey, we could turn this 
into a, a real horror movie with supernatural elements. Well, let me bring up a couple other pieces of trivia about this. First of all, Friday the 13th was only made for half a million dollars and became one of the most profitable films ever because it just made so much money. The first Friday the 13th is has the highest box office gross of any of the Friday the 13ths, not counting Freddy versus Jason. It was the most profitable in gross and in net. And when they decided to do a sequel and fast track a sequel, they had thought of doing it kind of like Halloween 3, the season of The Witch, where it wouldn't be a continuation of the characters. It would be a totally separate horror movie that takes place on Friday the 13th. And it was one of the producers who was like, no, no, you have to follow up on that end scare. But that leads me to the question to both of you. Why in the hell is this movie named Friday the 13th? Mm, That bugged me real bad. It's like... It could have just been called, I think it was supposed to be called Camp Blood or, you know, Never on a thunder, a Rainy Night or Full Moon. I mean, there's all these things they throw on there. It's, it could have been any superstition. Everyone in the book was thrown out, and I, I don't know that. Friday the 13th has anything. It's not even established that it is Friday the 13th, except I think in one bit of throwaway dialogue. Yeah, when she says today is his birthday, and that was it. But I really think that Camp Blood is a more apt title, which was the working title. Mm -hmm. I don't don't want to rain on anyone's parade, but in the beginning of the movie, they have Friday the 13th. They have it right there, June 13th. In a subtitle, yeah. That may be, but I'm just saying it's not like on this magical day he comes alive or there's always killing or, you know, it it just feels like, oh, Halloween made so much money because everyone knows what day Halloween is and what that means, so we need to pick another spooky day and base a horror movie around it. I hear you. And it has nothing to do with day. I hear you. Right. That makes sense. Whereas, you know, New Year's Evil, as stupid as that movie was, the killer literally went time zone to time zone killing people, which opens up a whole <laughs> lot of logistical questions about how one catches a plane and gets to, you know, mountain time after just slaughtering someone. But And brings the weapons with them on the plane. <laughs> uh, it was pre-9-11. <laughs> and then you have April Fool's Day also with a great poster with the girl's braid as a noose. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I want to get back to the ending of this movie. A couple of things that I want to make sure I mention because of this ending of this movie that I thought were interesting. And then the what I loved at the ending of this movie, Alice, they have the actress making coffee for like two minutes and it's one long shot. And I thought that was really cool to build suspense. I thought, I thought they were just filling out the running length of the movie. I don't even remember <laughs> this moment. <laughs> but she's, she's sitting there. She's in there making coffee like that. And then she's calm as a cucumber or whatever. And then Mrs. Voorhees comes in and she gets that first interaction with her. And then she runs to the pantry. And there's a wonderful shot of Alice underneath the doorknob and right above her. It's not a close-up of the doorknob. It's just a, it's like a mid-shot of Alice. And you see the knob turn very slowly. I thought that whole sequence with her going after Alice was incredible. Incredibly effective, and they use a lot of gimmicks and, and fun horror movie kind of things in my mind that really added tension and fun that I didn't expect from this movie. And so when they get to the beach and she finally decapitates her, it was building up. But for, for the life of me, I'm sitting there watching this movie and I'm screaming, Get in the car! Because I know she found the body in the car and that she's scared of the car. Kick the body out of the car, drive away, you're safe! And then she doesn't do that. But for the life of me, after she decapitates Mrs. Voorhees, then she says, oh, I feel like a boat ride. I'll go in the boat. <laughs> what the hell was that? I mean, if, if you're going to run away from Mrs. Voorhees, a good place to run away would be on the lake. You know, that's, that's smart. 
But after you kill her, you stand there, you're not even shaking. She doesn't even show any like sort of like expression. She just stands there like a bump on a log, turns around, sees the boat, gets in the boat. I mean, thank goodness it facilitated that fantastic, scary jumping of Jason out of the lake ending. But it made the logic there was gone. So all the great stuff the scene did kind of was like, what? But anyway, well, I just admittedly, but however, every time I see this movie, there's that scene right before Jason comes up where Alice is kind of dreamy and she dips her hand in the water. And I'm just every single time I see this movie, I'm like, no, don't put your hand in the water. It's going to wake him up. <laughs> exactly. And you were talking about the doorknob thing. I'm, there's a lot of that in the movie that I'd never noticed before because, again, I've seen this on small screens. Most of the time I've watched this on, like, a 15-inch screen. There's the scene with in the bathroom where there's the changing rooms. There's a hand on that curtain, and it is just subtle, but it is there. And if you're seeing this on a 40-foot movie screen, you'd be like, oh, my God, a hand! But you see this on a TV, and you don't even see it. It looks like a little spl- spot. And seeing it, you know, on a big screen, I was like, Wow, that's a hand. That is that's really freaking scary that that person is right there and you see their hand ready. And there's a lot of that where it's not what's in focus because there's the counselor in the frame, but off in the distance, but in focus is that hand. And I think yep. that was very effectively done. It's a better movie than I was giving it credit. I'll give it that. I'm not still a fan of Friday the 13th, but I can see that there's there's a lot of classic moves. It's got kind of a classy package for for being a, a a B movie. It's it's put together well. And I and what I'm curious to see is how much of this classism um, is carried over into the sequels as we move into an MTV generation mentality, quick edits and all of that. I my memory does not lead me to believe that it will retain this kind of filmmaking. Now, let's just sum it up. Final thoughts. Would you recommend this movie to someone who has gone the past 28 years without having it in their life? No, I'd recommend Psycho. Um, Psycho is a great movie, and we can talk about that some other time, because I agree with you. I, I think people should see Psycho. It's one of those movies you have to see. I don't think Friday the 13th is a movie you have to see. And I do like that last time I watched it and this time I li- I watched it, I was pleasantly surprised on how much I enjoyed it because of those things like those clever shots and the variety of kills. And it actually has more to it than just a bunch of kids getting killed. So would I recommend it? If you're curious about it, I think go right ahead. But there are other things you should spend time watching, (laughs) you know? So a tentative recommendation in context, yes, I would recommend you see it. But overall, there are things that other things you should watch first, and then eventually you should get around to this. And my thought on this is that, first of all, the movie is somewhat ruined by all the meta-knowledge we have. The mystery of this movie, as we've already said, is gone. And perhaps, you know, perhaps everyone should now see this movie at the age of seven like I did, because it's the only time you're not going to know who the killer is from the very first frame. But assuming you are not seven years old and you know all this meta-knowledge, could I recommend this? You know what you're getting when you get a Friday the 13th movie, especially an older Friday the 13th movie. You know what you're in for i think it's almost required viewing for horror fans at this point there's a certain you know resume you have to check off to get your horror street cred and this is one of them and it's it's not as bad as some people may make it out to be it's a lot better than all of the other movies Stuart has compared it with like april fool's day and all of that it's a it's a <laughs> it's a cut above and <laughs> thank you competing drum rolls on that one <laughs> 
<laughs> dueling rim shots. I, is it a great movie? Absolutely not. But if you are in the mood to see some annoying bad actors bite it, this is a good way to get that fix. I think you and I said the exact same thing two different ways, but I'm in complete agreement with you. The genre thing I was mentioning is like if you're if you're into it, go for it. You have to see it if you're into it. But honestly, I think Stewart hit the nail on the head when he said Psycho. I, I think that you should, if you're going to go for an older horror movie to see where it all began, go there first and eventually get around to Friday the 13th. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us. This has been a fun discussion. All right. I look forward to the next movie in the series. Well, what's that called? Friday the 13th Part 2. Oh, I didn't, I didn't follow. <laughs> Thanks, sorry. Thank you for listening to our Friday the 13th Retrospective. We will be reviewing two Friday the 13th episodes each week, up to the release of the new movie in February. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to get the latest episodes. If you did. If you did. If you did. If you did. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved.